0: Welcome to Rhode Island's Amazing Women. I'm Deb Giro. Domestic violence is a public health and a public safety issue for women. Violence against anyone is in, in any form is a crime, whether it's your spouse, your lover, your stranger. a Domestic violence affects all people, all races, all cultures, all economic backgrounds. My guests today are two very amazing women who work tirelessly to reduce domestic violence and help survivors navigate the judicial and legal system. Shelly Cortez has over 20 years experience at the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. Since 2015, she's been the Associate Director of Community Corrections, overseeing the domestic violence programming, and she oversees adult probation and parole. She also chairs the Rhode Island Batterers Intervention Oversight Committee, charged with certifying the programs for those convicted of domestic violence. Shelly has a BA in justice studies, a master's in counseling and a graduate study certificate in mental health counseling. So she's someone who cares deeply about helping survivors and she also works closely with the Rhode Island coalition against domestic violence. So also joining us is Lucy Rios, the executive director of the coalition. And Lucy has been in this movement to end domestic violence for over twenty years. She's no stranger to this radio show. She's joined us before as her many of her colleagues. She's collaborating with the Rhode Island Department of Corrections to provide training. And so, ladies, we have a lot to unpack in the next twenty six minutes. So I want to thank you both for joining me. Welcome. How does this collaboration between the Rhode Island Department of Corrections and the Rhode Island Co- Coalition Against Domestic Violence begin? How did this begin?
1: Well, our, is that okay, Lucy? Yeah, if I go, sure, our, our
0: collaboration
1: um, began over 20 years ago, um, and there are many aspects to it. Um, the two that stand out are in uh, 1997. Um, the legislators in the state prompted us to work together and collaborate to create uh, meaningful and effective programming for offenders who are involved in committing domestic violence. Um, and around that same time, unfortunately, and we're still struggling with this now, we experienced um, a rash of domestic violence homicides in the state. And frankly, many of those offenders were in the system and had intersected with a number of Points in the system and they were on probation so we made a decided effort with the coalition and other advocacy groups and others in the system we you know sat down and said hey we really have to do a better job not that we're not dedicated but we have to really help folks Mm -hmm. understand this issue we need to understand it on on the offender side where we're intervening and we need your help um, at the coalition so that we can better serve victims and so that we can ultimately
0: prevent harm. So Lucy, how? what is it that you provide? What services? What training? What is the intersection?
2: Yes. Um, so thank you for having us this morning, Deb. And our network um, is made up of 10 member agencies, all that provide direct services to those that are experiencing domestic violence. We provide a range of services from shelter to legal uh, advocacy, court advocacy, helping people obtain restraining orders, counseling, programs for children. I mean, there's just a range of services that are provided through our network. And on average, we serve about 10,000 victims a year through our network of domestic violence uh, providers. Mm -hmm. What we bring to the collaboration is the the gaps that we are seeing when we are trying to support survivors as they navigate these different systems that they're going to interact with. So whether it's with the courts, police, probation, and hospitals. We are there hearing their stories. We're hearing directly from advocates. We're hearing directly from survivors about what isn't working. And it is our role at the coalition to lift that up, to lift up those gaps, the needs that they are seeing, and work with the different state agencies, the different systems to make sure that they are responding in a way that's actually going to support survivors into obtaining safety. So I get the gaps
0: for survivors, and that's so important, but Shelly was talking about those who were act actually those who were the perpetrators of domestic violence, who are out on parole. What kind of training, services, counseling is being provided for those men and women so that there there isn't a repeat of the behavior? Yeah. And uh,
2: so
1: Go ahead, I'm sorry, and thank you, Jeff, for having me. Uh, We we do provide in, so in probation and parole, we have about 18,000 folks on probation and parole, just to give you a sense of um, what this looks like. And we supervise about 8,000 of those actively. And for the sake of this conversation, about a quarter of those, or 2,000, are on probation and parole for domestic violence. That's a significant amount of perpetrators. Um, in our state. And we're not alone, but but it's significant. So what we do here is we do specialized supervision in the area of domestic violence. And those officers are carrying only domestic violence offender cases on their caseloads. And why that's significant is what we're trying to do, and it's difficult in serving uh, perpetrators, is do victim-centered work. But so, for example, some of those folks are They're working collaboratively with the programs that are providing the interventions in the state. They are reaching out to willing victims. They are making themselves available to victims if they want information about the case, or we we need to refer them over to maybe the coalition or, or some of those services. And they are specializing in really trying to reduce harm, because, as you know, these cases are generally high risk. They're repeat offenders. And we need to be working with police. We need to be communicating with victim advocates. We need to be communicating with the AG's office uh, behind the scenes and up front so that we can reduce harm as, as much as possible.
0: So yes. the 2000 people. Um, go ahead, Lucy, because <laughs> you must intersect with the 2000 who are on parole for domestic violence.
1: And it's probation, Deb. I'm sorry. There's a little oh. bit of confusion. Okay, sorry. There's some on parole, but there's there's many more on probation. So I just want to make that accurate.
2: And I, I just want to share a way that we um, collaborate um, is in training, right? So making sure that Um, Both of our systems, those that are responding to the needs of victims and those that are working with perpetrators, understand what are those lethality risk factors. So we just had um, Dr. Jacqueline Campbell come to Rhode Island. That was a result of our collaboration. Um, We made sure uh, that we were able to get the resources to bring her expertise into our state and help train advocates law enforcement all those that come in contact with victims and perpetrators of domestic violence to understand what those warning signs may be that a case is um, potentially going to result in a in a vitality right so some of that like stalking behaviors so the victim has recently left the relationship Um, and uh, strangulation, right? So risk factors that let us know that this is a case that we need to be paying more attention to because this person is showing clear signs that they're becoming more dangerous. Mm, Yeah. Hey, if you're just
0: joining us, uh, thank you for listening to the podcast or if you're listening on a radio station. uh, You can listen anytime on all your favorite streaming devices. I'm Deborah Giro. Karen Kay is at the controls and my guests are Shelly Cortez from the Department of Corrections and she oversees the probation and parole. Also joining us is Lucy Rios from the Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Lucy, it's pretty unnerving for a woman to suddenly realize that her home is no longer safe, her children are no longer safe, uh, there could be a call to the police, and all of a sudden, they're at the door. You know. So what are some of the challenges and fears that these women um, have of the legal system? Well, you
2: just named some of them, right? It's an it's a, a system that if you haven't had interaction with, can be intimidating. There's, it's a fast-paced environment, there's a lot of jargon that's used, um, and now there's fear that Uh, There's another system involved um, that may not believe you, um, Mm. believe what you're sharing, uh, that may um, blame you for what's happening to you. um, And just fear that whatever abusive threats the abusive partners have made um, around them accessing any outside help at all, that they're going to make good on those threats. And it might be, you know, threats to harm them, threats to harm the children, threats to harm the pets, um, to expose them um, in their workplace, make up lies about them, report them to DCYF. I mean, there's so many ways in which abusers mm-hmm. um, use and manipulate uh, the systems uh, to kind of keep a stronger hold and control over their victim. And so, when a system is coming in um, in a high uh, in a crisis situation, um, it, it it's it's scary, and yeah. there's a lot of fear that they're not going to be believed.
0: And I want to feather that out a little bit more because Rhode Island has a law that an officer responding to or investigating a domestic violence incident shall complete a domestic violence report, whether or not an arrest occurs, right? It's not optional. So are there instances that the police perhaps are not completing a report? And how do you know if there's any underreporting? Lucy and then Shelly.
2: Well, we we know that domestic violence in general is underreported because there, again, there's a lot of fear of having an outside influence uh, system coming in um, to the situation. We do know in Rhode Island that our police department are really well trained. Um, It's a collaboration with advocates from the domestic and sexual violence organizations, in addition to law enforcement, where they are trained on completing that report, the mm-hmm. domestic violence, sexual violence uh, report. Uh, and so we do um, are able to get great data about what happens when they respond, how many children are present, um, how many times does it result in an arrest. Uh, and that information is really useful to us as a system to figure out how can we, um, do, where do we need more resources? Shelly? Mm-hmm.
0: Shelly? I agree, and I
1: think, uh, uh, you know, on the in the larger picture, on the macro level, that's absolutely very well said, and I think for us over here, when we're trying to, it, you know, I think it's a challenge for anybody in the system when we're talking about not siloing off and not communicating, but it's a challenge, you know, for us sometimes when we're working with the offender, if we don't have the police report, or we don't know exactly what happened, how are we going to do this in a meaningful way and hold that person accountable in a meaningful way? One of the things that we try to do within the boundaries of what we do, and Lucy and her folks are extremely helpful in this way, is always have the victim in mind, um, regardless of what's in the report or how things may, you know, kind of come out in the system. And we're very, you know, we, we may not have direct contact with that victim, but we try to do our work always thinking about what, what how is this going to impact somebody? Is this going to create re-traumatization? Is this mm. going to create additional fear? So to Lucy's point and to yours, Deb, I think as much reporting as we can have and as, as accurate as that can be and descriptive as it can be, I think that will equip us in, in the one way that we know is so in, impactful in this work, which is collaboration.
0: So women make up 51% of the state, yet I understand 80% of the domestic violence calls are from women. Is that right, Lucy?
2: Well, what we know, Deb, um, about um, data and prevalence in Rhode Island is that about one in three women living in Rhode Island experience domestic violence at some point in their lifetime. And one in four men um, experience some form of intimate partner violence in their lifetime as well. Um, So... What, but the major difference here or something I really want to make sure that is clear is that the impact is different. So, because when you hear one in three, one in four, that's significant across. Sure is. Oh, yeah, genders for sure. Um, but the impact of of the severity is greater for women. So, we find that 65% of women that are experiencing, um, IPV in Rhode Island are experiencing other, um, other impacts like being afraid, PTSD, needing medical care, needing advocacy services, mm-hmm. where um, when we look at that as a, compared to men, we find that about 30 percent of men are in need of those services.
0: And Rhode Island's a state where a person can apply for a TRO, a temporary restraining order, without a criminal domestic violence charge, right?
2: Yes. And we have mm-hmm. advocates that work in the courthouse um, through our domestic violence um restraining order office that can help a victim who is in fear and wants to seek an order of protection complete the affidavit and give them information about what the next steps are and also link them to other resources in the community to help them stay safe.
0: And the TROs are issued in family court, right? But yet domestic violence cases are heard in district court. So I guess my question would be, are there gaps in the judicial system? And is that something that we need to look at?
2: Well, there are gaps in the judicial system in general, there's a lot of them, Um, but actually victims can obtain a restraining order in district court and in family court. um, Okay. In that protection, yes.
0: And and full disclosure to our audience, uh, the three of us are part of the Justice Reinvestment Initiative Working Group, right, looking at domestic violence training, how responsive are the police, what advocacy services are available, how, you know, survivors can access them. And I want to just, in full disclosure, say this, too. Some of the judges on this working group have said that there should be more coordination. I mean, one issue we discussed is some states actually have a special domestic violence court with a single judge. Do you think there are sufficient cases in Rhode Island to warrant that? And would that become more of a cohesive process? Shelley, what are your thoughts? And then we'd love to hear from Lucy. Um,
1: you know, my thoughts, I definitely think, unfortunately, there are enough cases. I think, again, we're not alone across the country. And as you both know very well, the pandemic has compounded that even further. Um, exacerbating some of the conditions that, you know, um, already contribute to, you know, the dynamics of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Um, I can only speak for, from, you know, where I sit and and, and it's an honor and, and it's exciting to be a part of this collaborative process with you both and everyone on that committee. I do think that there are, like with anything else, there are pros and cons and, you know, short of getting into the weeds of all of that, I think there are a lot of pros in terms of, Does it create consistency? I think, yes, it would. Does it create, you know, I mean, we know the system and it's through no fault of anyone dedicated to the work. We could say this about corrections. There are gaps. We need to talk about that. We need to try to fill those. So we would have less of those, I think, in a streamlined way if victims and perpetrators quite frankly, had one place to go. And then we could focus on, I think on the treatment side or the intervention side is a better word for it. What is the effective intervention how do you know we would be working closely with a judge who had the benefit their judges are phenomenal in our state it's not easy but who had the benefit just kind of like we do in probation and parole of specialized training understanding and consistency so I mean again from where from where that said as Lucy knows as well we need funding at a higher level Um, we need we can't just you know, frankly, just throw everybody that commits this crime into that bucket. What we need to do is do it carefully, fund it well, and make sure that those of us on the intervention side are doing our part to make sure that we're targeting the right people and that they're following, that's connected to probation, that's connected to better vic- victim outcomes, because that's what we're always thinking about. Mm-hmm. It's a long way of saying, yeah, I think it's. I think it would be absolutely um, a good thing in Rhode Island from where I sit, But again, I can't speak for others. And Lucy, please chime in. Yes,
2: definitely. Um, Thank you for bringing out um, the Domestic Violence Court. Um, It is one of the recommendations that we uh, made in our recently published um, domestic violence homicides report from 2016 to 2020. And it was, um, so establishing a high-risk domestic violence court is something that is important to the coalition. Uh, It is something that we are been having conversations with the court um, about. Uh, and we are doing more uh, research. We, we brought in um, technical assistance from the Center for Court Innovation several years ago, right before the pandemic, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, the pandemic ha- happened. And so we had to shift gears. Um, but it still remains an important um, uh, recommendation for us and something that we do want to see um, happen in the state of Rhode Island. Because uh, like Shelley was saying, uh, it will um, make it so that all of the people working in the high-risk domestic violence court receive training on lethality risk factors, on domestic violence, and then also have the resources, the tools, to support not only the offenders mm-hmm. in making sure that they're complying with whatever orders have been issued, but then also for the victims, mm-hmm. that victims will be able to have more advocates um, and more support uh, right in the courthouse and be able to be connected to people that can help them make a safe, a, a plan to, to get out of the relationship safely. Um, so I think a domestic violence court will make a huge difference in Rhode mm-hmm. Island. It is something that we are going to continue to move Um, And work on uh, at our coalition and hopefully maybe it will become one of the priorities of the governor executive working committee that that would be that was ideal
0: well i know you've been talking about it for many years here we are years later it still hasn't happened but then again it took many years for there to become a dedicated mental health court and that just recently happened so part of it you know to your point is educating the public educating the legislature and then finding the budget you know the money within the budget to sustain it at the end of the day. Shelly, you made some interesting point, and I think semantics words are so important, especially in the business that I'm in. You're saying it's intervention and not treatment for Correct. those who are prone to pretty aggressive behavior. So I think that's um, that's an, a very important distinction. It's also important, I think, to recognize that systems don't always work, right? You know, um, but the level of communication needs to be there. Would you say that's one of the most important aspects of this with your collaboration?
1: Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that I'm so proud of as a Rhode Islander and in working in this field as a public servant is the response of the way that we are able to really partner with, it's very difficult for law enforcement corrections to do this with victim services. We need to do it carefully, but we've done this for so many years, formally and informally. And I think something like a domestic violence court would really formalize that we know that it, it works we don't we're not always as good as we would hope to be at measuring it because we don't have the resources. Um, but yes, I mean, I think it's it's, you know, it's incredibly important that there's so many layers to this problem. And it's so difficult to measure, but one of the things that I always, that, you know, I've been doing this for almost 25 years that comes back and comes up is we need to collaborate, we need to communicate, we need to have diversity and multi-dimension to our work. It's difficult in the system, it's difficult, it's personal, right? Domestic violence is personal, no matter mm-hmm. what anybody says. And so we're trying to take this very personal Um, very intrusive thing for victims and turn it into we have to analyze it and talk about data and sometimes that can feel really difficult so but I think that's what that's what we need to continue to do. And as we're doing it, the the only way we can be effective in corrections in this work, and this is based on my experience is if we involve the victim, if we we can't do our work with perpetrators in a vacuum. Right. I'm not saying they're responsible, but they have to be involved. We have to be talking and listening to, even when it's hard and not what we want to hear, what advocacy is saying and how we can do it better, how we can you know work together. And that is key, I think, to anything we continue to do going forward. And the research supports that.
0: So my original question, though, you mentioned there were 2,000 um, domestic violence um, people, you know, perpetrators who are on uh, probation. Is there, an, are there enough domestic violence case to sustain, you know, a single domestic violence court? Yes. yes. Okay.
1: Yes, because again, without, and again, Lucy, please chime in if I don't want to um, talk too much here, but I, there really are, I mean, honestly, and you know this, but one domestic violence cases take a lot of resources, in, and if it's done, if it's done well, and I'm saying this like if you're really reaching out to the victim, and you're really doing the training, and you're collaborating behind the scenes, even just five cases, right? So you're specializing in this area. It's it's 2,000 is 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 too many, and right. then there are those in the system, um, you know, that we know we talk all about sort of what we have jurisdiction over, but there are many people, we also wanna think about raising the voices outside of the system. Right. Um, and, and there, this we know in, in corrections and Lucy right. knows this, I, I may see if I'm a probation officer, you know, John Smith for the first time, but chances are John mm-hmm. Smith has been repeat offender and just got
0: caught, mm-hmm. so. So in the final minutes that we have, um, what's your vision for the future of this work between the Rhode Island Department of Corrections and the Coalition Against Domestic Violence in 35 seconds? 35 seconds. I'll go (laughs) first. first. Uh,
2: Yeah. So I think uh, continuing to have this dialogue, continuing to find ways to partner, uh, training being one of those, but continuing to make sure that Both of the people that are in our work systems are well-informed, well-educated, well-trained on the dynamics of abuse, aware of where the resources are, Um, and hopefully, you know, I'm really excited to see what will come out of the executive um, committee of the governor um, and those policy recommendations, and I know that based on those policy recommendations, we will continue to collaborate and work together to try to improve both of our systems and make sure that Rhode Islanders are living in safe and thriving
0: And that Justice Reinvestment Initiative Working Group that you're talking about, uh, Lucy, the recommendations will be made, but, you know, with a part-time legislature, it may be next year, the next year, this could be a two or three year strategic plan, shall we? It
1: it absolutely
0: can be. And
1: I think, you know, Lucy said that wonderfully I think I share the same sentiments around the vision and I I just think we work in different ways at coming, we're coming at this from different angles, but we just need to keep understanding and uniting around the the outcomes here that we're both working toward are are less harm for for victims that's why we both do the work and uh, as long as we continue to collaborate and stand together and support each other and, and move this forward. I think we'll we'll be, you know, we'll be in good shape. So, and it's, it's and a pleasure. We are
0: so blessed to have the two of you, two very amazing women working so tirelessly on this issue. What a great conversation. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for having us, Deb. Appreciate well, it. My I pleasure. The opportunity. And as I
0: mentioned, I start and I will end with domestic violence is a public health and a public safety issue. So we are so Grateful for the work of Shelley Cortez, the Department of Corrections, Lucy Rios, the Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and I end each show with a quote. This one is from, of all people, Audrey Hepburn. Nothing is impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible. Think about it. I'm Deborah Giro. Thank you for joining us. You can listen to the podcast anytime on all your favorite streaming devices. And of course, you can listen online at the website, RI. Dot .com stay well